Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 109. I am your host, as always, Walter, and joining me today are Azil. Hey everyone. And Grail. Hello. We are here to continue the reread project, and we're up to volume 23, which is one of the more contentious volumes in terms of what's in it. A little uncomfortable to discuss the contents of it, but it's also a crucial one for a number of reasons, as I'm sure you already know. But uh, we're eager to get into that. Before we jump into the reread, there's just a little bit of Berserk news as usual. Um, Azil, would you mind explaining the update on the exhibition? There's a Berserk exhibition coming up in Japan in about a month. And there was some a few milestones they hit recently that I just wanted to kind of record. Sure. So I think since the last podcast, um, the crowdfunding campaign was successful uh, to get a Zod statue built for the exhibition. So uh, they had uh, 403 backers in total, and they hit a target of uh, 13 million and uh, 500,000 yen. So that's like, you know... Uh, $135,000, yeah, roughly. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, a little bit less, but but that's it. So, yeah. And uh, aside from that, they introduced the merchandise that will be sold at the, at the exhibition. So it's exclusive to the exhibition, can't be bought online. Uh, they'll have uh, a bunch of um, illustrations printed very faithfully uh, as canvas, you know, uh, pulled over wooden frames. Um, and uh, they've got 11, I think they got around 20 in total, you know, 11 small ones, uh, seven medium-sized ones, and two big ones. It's mostly volume covers and various other colorings. Yeah, we got volume covers and a few side illustrations, uh, you know, one of Serpico, uh, you get one of uh, Guts and, uh, and Shirukes, those are usually from volume posters. So nothing we haven't seen before, but it might be nice to have them uh, in that uh, format. There's also a merchandise thing that you can eat, as I understand it. That's right. It's a Baumkuchen. Uh, it's a type of cake uh, Charlotte bakes for Griffiths, uh, you know, in the in the manga. So uh, it's it's cute. They did that. As I actually made made a thread, which Walter resented <laughs> uh, when the news came about. But uh, yeah, it's this type of cake is originally German. It's a traditional German cake. Uh, it's very popular in Japan, so they can get access to one pretty easily. And uh, and yeah, they're going to be proposing it for something like uh, $17. So nice for those who will be able to attend. I'll be honest, I did not pay any attention to the cake that Charlotte made for Griffith. It was more like, wow, I can't believe this asshole is eating cake. <laughs> right in front of us was more of my focus. Um, but yeah, that's interesting that that cake has some kind of – like they brought it over to Japan in the early 1900s and it was a big hit for some reason. Like a big hit. Yeah. That cake. Let the meat cake. There's lots of different cakes, but that one was a big deal in Japan. It's funny because Japanese people, you know, they're big into bakery. A lot of uh, Japanese bakers and pastry chefs uh, come to study in France especially – so there's actually a lot of, uh, if you go to Japan, they've got a lot of pastries. And, and this one, it's uh, quite specific because it's, it's a you know, very traditional one. It's done over a spit. So you put the cake on a spit. It, you know, it's a very specific way to, to cook it. And so nowadays, you know, even in Germany, you know, the traditional way to make it is not necessarily common anymore. But in Japan, it's still, it's like even bigger than in Europe, apparently. They've got it in a lot of, like, it's, it's easy to find them. 
uh, done the traditional way. So it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. Well, I never would have guessed that Charlotte could cook a cake on a spit. Well, if you look at uh, uh, episode uh, 258, she's actually got like, so there's Anna by her side and she's got like two other attendants. So how much she actually did herself is not, not necessarily clear. She supervised the <laughs> yeah, cake. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It looks like she just, you know, mixed up the dough and that's about it. <laughs> so, and yeah. she cut up the cake and brought it. That's her part. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So people that attend that event in January will be able to eat the delicious cake and buy a few smallish pieces of uh, canvas art from uh, Mira. That's great. The other thing is that they showed off kind of a work in progress for the Zod statue, and it looks real big. To me, it looks real big. Like the hand of Zod looks as big as a person. Like the, the, the fingers all stacking up. It looks like a... The size of the man building it, which is wow. really big. I never really thought about how big Zod is once transformed, but um, big. It's supposed to be to scale, huh? When I saw the, the shot of the hand, I was like, man, it's just, it's too big. It's out of scale. So I went and checked and it is too big. It's like twice bigger than Zod's hand. It's, you know, like his full fist is about the size of Gert's torso. Uh, and, and when you see like the size of that hand as they sculpted it, it's like, the hand is the size of a full full person, you know. So I think it's about twice too big. I don't know why they made it that big, honestly. Maybe the maybe it's like you know uh, ice sculpture. They're going to sculpt it down from that, and that's just the raw material they have to use to get. I don't know. I've never made a Zod sculpture. Yeah, indeed. I even thought it might be like just a mold, you know, and they'll be. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the last thing is I really hope we get some pictures out of that event. Somehow, some way, in any way, I would love to see. I've got a plan. That's awesome. It might, it might fail. So, not sure I should be saying so on the podcast, but I'll try something. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth it to make an effort because it does seem like a once in a, not once in a lifetime, but once in a, let's say, decade kind of thing. Yeah, so. well, it's never happened before, and I'm, I'm not expecting it to happen, you know, again anytime soon. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's that. Uh, we'll go on into the reread. We are talking about volume 23. I want to start, as always, talking about the cover. Um, this is a really good cover. One of my favorites. Top five, let's say. It's one of the rare covers that literally conveys the contents of the volume instead of just kind of a, you know, here's a picture of guts you can use. This one actually depicts the scenarios in a way that's visually interesting. Like I especially like how the dichotomy between Casca on one side and the beast on the other kind of perched on his shoulder, as it were, kind of depicts, you know, the kind of the crossroads he's at or the things that are weighing him down. Mm. And, uh, of course, we have Guts, sorry, Griffith and the Falcons on the horizon, kind of all their silhouettes and this beautiful sunset image. Actually, it's not a, I bet you it's the sun rising, that kind of thing. The idea that it's a, a new rising force on the horizon. All of them are depicted there. Grumbel, Locus, Sod, all the guys are there. So, very cool. Even Irvine is, uh, if you pay attention, is uh, shown on the right of Zod. Oh, yeah, look at that. Well, it's interesting, Walter, that you said that it's one of your favorite covers. I think that it's actually one of my least favorite. Oh! Damn, damn! Is it because of the uh, the, the way they paneled it, the, the really lame way he paneled the separation from the North and the South hemispheres. Individual elements of the cover for me are really cool and interesting, but I feel like it should be two different images. I feel like 
the the image of Griffith and his army is really cool, but to me it clashes in terms of color with uh, the stuff below that. Oh, color. I didn't think about that. Yeah, I see what you mean now, because the palette swaps once they go all the way up to yeah, the Falcon. It feels too different for me. My biggest problem is the fake paneling. That's what kind of bugs me about this looking at it is it's really split into two with this really rough kind of brush strokes to cover up. Yeah, I, I don't like that. And, and I guess um, maybe maybe I just don't like how literal it is for me. You were saying that you like how literal it is. So that's funny. I like that it's doing yeah. something with uh, this, the contents of the volume and representing this conflict in him in a way that's, to me, visually interesting instead of just, well... Guts is bleeding in this one. Yeah. Like volume 26. Hey, volume 26 is a fine cover, but this is doing more. Yeah, it's one of the rare covers that actually reflects and comments on what's inside the volume, which I think is worth worth noting, you know, both uh, the duality between Cask and the Beast, but also, you know, Griffiths and the Army. So I, I get I get the criticism. And I also think when you look at Casca, you know, the way she's uh, – you know, the, the the way her little side of the painting borders the rest, you know, you can tell he kind of winged it there. <laughs> but uh, I, I do like this illustration a lot. And I've actually got a, a painting of it, you know, reproduction hanging above my desk. So I can't, I can't complain. I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a fan. I'll also say, looking at this now, I realize, you know, I mostly read the Dark Horse edition for the sake of this reread. As I'm looking at the Japanese cover in my hand as well, it's quite different. The color grading is much different. It's more purple all around because like a purple shade to the whole thing. And in the Dark Horse edition, it's like the color separation must have gotten auto-tuned. Like, no kidding. Like, they went to Photoshop image adjust Yeah, they, they, they didn't even bother. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Because it, it's, it's quite a bit more uniform in the Japanese that's, version. That's a great thing to note because I have the Dark Horse version here I'm looking at. Yeah. So I, I have a, what I mentioned is actually have a like color accurate uh, reproduction from Hakusensha. So I can tell you that uh, it's very it's more blue than uh, violet, mm. you know, as far as the uh, overall color is. But yeah, basically when you look at the sky at the top, it's the same kind of blue as what you know Casca uh, as the color Casca or the army has. So it's not hard to say. It doesn't, you know, jump out to me as being like uh, tonally too different, you know, as far as the colors go. It's, it's more, I mean, it feels pretty uniform. It sounds like they mesh, they mesh the colors more effectively in that, in the original version. And then as it, as it got passed around, it got messed up, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, could very well be. But I mean, actually, since we were speaking about the stuff that will be selling at the expo, uh, the whole color accuracy of the reproduction is one of the big things that put forward is that basically they're reproducing the original painting Mira did as accurately as possible, which is not the case, for example, for the covers. You know, you might get some differences, whereas these ones are supposed to be like perfect. Yeah. Wow. That's a big deal. That's cool. Well, I mean, that's why they're selling these at uh, those prices, you know, like 50 bucks for a small yeah. thing. So. Let's move on to the posters. This one has a poster insert, double-sided as usual. And one side depicts Griffith and the uh, Apostle Army. Kind of a nice side shot of each of them, all looking in one direction. Uh, kind of the same coloring, sort of orangish tint as you might expect from you know a sunrise or a sunset. But you know, what's different is Griffith is different from them. He's just colored in white. 
Yeah, I really like what he did there, uh, making Griffith stand out like that. I think that's pretty cool. On the other side, we have Gus and Casca on kind of this desolate scenery, which is very reminiscent of this whole volume. On a very, what's it called? The canvas uh, texture is very prominent in this mm. one. Very, very prominent. You can see the little grains of the texture on the on the canvas more than you would normally see in a piece like this. Kind of maybe intentionally done to texture it. And we have you know little dudes in the in the nearby bog, a swamp about to rise up and attack them as the clouds gather. Yeah, I quite like uh, I quite like that, that illustration. I think it's uh, it's not necessarily well known because you know you never see it posted or anything like that. But I think it's a it's a great representation of that part of the story, which of course is embodied by this this volume, you know, but the solitude of, you know, traveling the two of them, I guess three with Puck and, you know, in these desolate landscapes, fighting, you know, the kind of routine of fighting the ghosts. Um, I, I really like it. It's got a kind of melancholy to it that I really like with that, you know, broken down, you know, castle in the background. Yeah. yeah that's a good point that everything is, it's monochrome. Everything is of the same color and it kind of makes it more bleak. Um, mm-hmm. You can imagine if this was a full color, it would have a different mood, but it's intentionally bleak. I also got a little note about the, um, you know, the illustration of the backflip of the dust cover, you know, that little thing. Yeah, uh, the little guts picture. Yeah, it's the same one that's being uh, issued on the uh, signed uh, sheet for the crowdfunding oh, really? campaign. Yeah. So uh, it's funny because that's, you know, one of the many illustrations Mira did of gods that no one cares about. Yeah, it's not one I've ever paid attention to. But now, 10 guys who paid, you know, a uh, thousand and uh, hundred, uh, will we'll get that one signed. So that, that's pretty it made nice. A comeback. It's it's a fine image of guts. Yeah, it's I, not a standout one. I actually like it a lot too. It's just too mm. bad it's never been. I don't know an art book, for example. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> if it is renamed our podcast, our book complaints. It would not be. It would be fair. <laughs> <laughs> That's all on me. I I take responsibility for that. Um, as we go past the posters, we have the little individual volume insert image, and it's of Griffith next to the Falcon emblem. Which is significant because this edition kind of marks the return of the Band of the Falcon. Uh, something that I don't necessarily know that I expected to happen uh, reading it. I figured the Band of the Falcon, the name, the, the group would be an identity that would be kind of buried along with the Falcons that we knew. But, you know, Miura reprised that, uh, the name and the group itself, uh, which leads to some kind of bitter memories for Guts down the line. But on the opposite end of the spectrum... It's just a good PR, right? It's good PR, the savior of the mm-hmm. kingdom and the continent, really, uh, reprising his role as the leader of the Falcons. It just makes sense. I mean, one thing that's not necessarily clear to uh, English readers is that it's a band of the Falcon and the Falcon is Griffiths. So no matter who are in the band, it's still the band of the Falcon. You know, that's the point of it. The other thing worthy of note here about that choice in this the framing of Griffith is that this volume also represents Mira putting his foot down on the kind of character that Griffith is going to be, the kind, the, the way that he's going to take his kingdom. And it's not what you might expect an uh, evil overlord to do. You know, he's depicted as heroic in this and somewhat in volume 22 as well, but way more here, I think. He's much more dashing and c- courageous and shown as, you know, a caring hero versus what you might expect from, you know, Femto in a skin suit. Well, like you were saying, the, the propaganda machine is in full force here. 
Absolutely. Every every little move he makes, every bite of cake he takes yeah. is very much all for a show. <laughs> yeah. Let's go on to the overall significance of 23. Um, this volume is a turning point for the series. First, it reintroduces the Beast as a looming internal threat for Guts and Casca. Uh, this results in a new group dynamic that recasts the roles and relationships around Guts. And that's shown as a change of necessity because of what Guts's inner conflict is with the Beast. And that also gets reflected in how Mira chooses to spend his time on characters from here moving forward. So as a result, this is kind of one of the last times we get such a focused look at what's on Guts' mind. We get it again once they get on the ship, whenever he has the nightmare a little bit, and when he re- jumps overboard to save Casca. Those small moments aside, there aren't a lot of instances like that, like they are in this volume, where the first three or four episodes are very much in Guts' head. You get a lot of inner monologue from Guts, and that tends to go away as Miura fills out the cast around him with more and more characters. Uh, it's also um, the aftermath of getting Casca back in Guts' arms. The past five volumes since volume 17 were about Guts struggling to get her back, and he didn't really consider necessarily how he'd grapple with her not being the Casca that he knows, and both of them attracting specters every night. And in this volume, we see the aftermath of that, of, of, of both of those things. Uh, we also get another taste of what the front line in Griffith's War looks like from the perspective of Mule, a new character, and we get a little bit more of Sonia uh, introduced the last volume. So Amir is doing something pretty clever with the Apostles because he's singling out the generals as special by enriching them, giving them little moments of individuality, making them sympathetic or at least aligned with sympathetic motives, not just the ravenous, hungry Apostles because they're there too. But these generals are set up as different. There's also a big moment in this volume because Mira is making the choice to make her for the hero again, not necessarily a tyrant, as I already discussed. But that's the foundation that Falconia will be built on. Any other thoughts on the significance 23? Well, I think you nailed it. I mean, this is such a huge volume. I was I was just talking with Gob about the significance of the dynamic between Guts and Casca in this particular part. And it echoes throughout the rest of of their time trying to get to Elfhelm, their time with the group. And uh, it's, it's really, uh, it sets the tone, I think, for the relationship as they're moving towards that place. You know, I think it's exceptionally well done because in just five episodes, we go from a, a guts that's completely, you know, independent, doesn't need anyone, uh, to someone who's at, you know, the end of the rope and he has no other choice but to accept people trust strangers because he can't do it by himself anymore. And I think the way Murat did it is extremely efficient uh, and very poignant as well. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a key moment in the, in the series, which is probably underappreciated, I say. Yeah, I think it's probably just, I mean, for me anyway, it's one of those uncomfortable moments, not just because of what culminates with Guts and Casca and the Beast, but also just the first five episodes are just a bummer. It's just like hit after hit after hit as Guts is trying his best and he just gets overwhelmed and just like by by degrees, he's failing. It's not one of those volumes, it's not a happy read and Berserk's rarely just a happy read, you know, but this in particular is just grueling. There's two, two moments in Berserk where it's kind of a struggle to go and read them and get through them and that's, you know, the rape during the eclipse and, and that part uh, in volume 23 when Guts uh, sexually assaults Casca. These are uh, hard to digest. And um, that also I mean, it doesn't mean they're bad. 
they're interesting, but there are some things that are, like you said, grueling to get through. And I think that's on purpose. You know, it's something we are intended. While we don't necessarily love reading them, uh, it's interesting to, to talk about them and to see how they are made and what purpose they serve. Yeah. I do wonder um, how much Miura was aware or, or, or maybe he wasn't aware of how ballsy it was to do what he did with Guts and Casca to put his protagonist, Guts, you know, in this role where he's sexually assaulting, you know, the female protagonist in a way that makes you wonder, will he be able to redeem Guts from this? Like how far is too far to skirt the line between negligence or an abuse between what Guts does and what the beast wants him to do, you know? But I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like this is one of those moments where the series could could live or die based on how this is perceived and how it's executed. And I feel like, I feel like it's right on the line of what I would deem like okay or acceptable, uh, given where the series goes from there. But it's 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 uncomfortable. As well, a the sense that I get is that Miura has always had this expectation or the the trust in the reader that they'll understand what where he's coming from in terms of his writing and and putting putting us through difficult stuff. But he always, I feel like he's always like, he's got our back in the end because in the case of this particular scene, it's immediately followed by some really light fare. And it kind of like, it's like, hey, everything's going to be okay, guys. But, you know, yeah, it's it's like, I feel like he is trying to balance things out. So I feel like he, he's like, okay, the reader will understand what I'm trying to do here. This is a this is a really good comment, Grail, because I do think uh, it's on purpose that he mixes up uh, like these dreary scenes and some lighter stuff. And at the same time, I also think I mean I think he knew it was uh, it was ballsy to do it, but I think he felt it necessary. I don't want to talk too much because we're gonna go over this later on. I do think he felt it was necessary, um, and I, I think it's necessary. You know, mainly because the reader wouldn't accept that Gus would suddenly be like, "Hey, sure, you want to join me? No problem." You know, we wouldn't accept that unless there was something that really, really warranted it. And what else would warrant it that Gus not trusting himself anymore? And so that's why this episode is important. Yeah, he needed to establish the group. That's a really good point. Yeah, as for redeeming Gus. I mean, again, we'll go over this, but I feel like um, the way it's whole, this whole thing is set up makes that Gus, like like you said, Walter, it really skirts the line. Gus is not, I'll try it, a bad guy. He does a bad thing. Like, he feels bad about it before. He feels bad about it after immediately. And he beats himself up over it for a long time. Casca resents it about him uh, for a long time. So... You know, I think overall it's one of these scenes where uh, he's already paid for it. You know, when you look back at how the series progressed, it's a, a scene where he did a bad thing and he's paid for it. And it might be addressed in the future, of course, but um, I, I feel like, it, you know, it worked in the way it was intended. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and start with the individual episodes. Um, I'll be narrating the first one for Winter Journey Part 1. Uh, Guts and Casca are pushing on through the winter as specters torment them through the night in the form of snowmen. I think it's interesting, interesting how they take the apparition of ghosts in this page, or specters, and they throw their bodies or their astral bodies into the snow and then take on the snow as snowmen. So they become more weighty and thick, uh, which is really cool. 
And you see guts slashing through two of them as they are more dense than they normally would be. So probably tougher to hit. Uh, but he's also having to hold Casca. An interesting or funny thing happens in this episode where Casca breaks away from guts from his hold for a second and then squats down, which leads to, you know, Spectre's trying to attack her. So guts has to attack them. And then Guts asks, what was the deal with that? And he sees that she had to stop and take a bathroom break in the middle of the the attack. And that's why the snow starts steaming where she's standing, which is kind of a fun light (laughs) moment. And then he has to wash her clothes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Guts reflects that this is harder than he expected. Because in addition to having to protect Casca, she becomes a living reminder of the past. In his dreams, Guts is visited by the Beast of Darkness, which is brought in by Incubi. And the beast urges Guts to kill Casca so that he can continue on his quest for revenge. Ultimately, he decapitates her with its teeth. Guts wakes up and expresses doubt that that would ever happen. So before we get into page-by-page stuff, uh, I wanted to say that you know this is the start of a series of episodes that chip away at Guts' confidence that he can protect Casca. Because the bigger picture is that Miura has designed a scenario that disempowers Guts. So he needs help. He needs comrades. At the same time... Guts is now an incredible warrior, so it's not going to be an individual enemy that stops him. So what could tip the scales? Because the battle with specters are exhausting, but what really changes the trajectory for Guts is that he can't trust himself anymore. He can protect Casca from the outside threats, but he has the potential to become his own worst enemy whenever he least expects it. Right. So there's a couple quotes I wanted to pull from here because he just directly addresses it. Guts says, it's harder than I thought wielding the sword to protect someone, but what's harder is how the shadow of who you used to be keeps reminding me of those days and how they were shattered. And later on, the beast tells him, is she not precious only because she's the wound that Griffith left because you want to keep feeling that pain? Which those two lines in conjunction are interesting because it's similar to what Halmiura describes the reasons for having kept Casca around after the eclipse, which he explains in the guidebook interview. He says... If she had died and the serialization had continued for a long time, I feared the reason for revenge would become something trapped in the past. And if Guts established new relationships, his incentive would waver. It may seem calculating and unpleasant, but it's because Casca is by his side that he can never forget the eclipse. Which really mirrors just what the Beast had said, which is a it's a it's an uncomfortable but real reminder of that the fact the past continues to hurt him, but he has to have that reminder. He doesn't want to lose that pain, I guess. Of, of, the, of the past. That's a great point because, like you were saying, the, the parallel between what the Beast is saying and what Guts in his consciousness is saying is very similar because at the end of the day, the Beast is Guts. And I think that's a good reminder for the reader to have as they're, as they're kind of going forward. That's a part of himself and it's not really an external force imposing itself on mm-hmm. him. Yeah, I feel like that's a convenient way. Um, the other side of that, which is that the beast is something other than guts. It's, it's a convenient way to distance guts from the consequences of the actions that he takes. But it's just, it just doesn't hold any water. It's not like guts was infected with some super specter in the past, or that the the blood that he had put on him from specters has somehow, in, you know, invaded his body and taken him over. It's it's really him. It's it's this dark engine that he started in himself to to take on revenge in a way that was really efficient whenever he was by himself. But those same dark urges are, are still there in his body or in his, his motivations, I guess. So One thing I found interesting in this episode, there's a shot of him seeing her naked and he reverses his gaze, you know, and that's a great lead 
uh, to what follows a few episodes later. And that's something which is paired with the, the quote you gave about her being just a shadow of who she used to be. And, you know, there's one aspect, which is his uh, sexual desire for her. You know, she used to be his lover, and he still loves her very much. And as a man, you know, he desires her sexually. And that's something, among other things, he has to do without, you know, he has to refrain it. Um, and, and I think it's interesting that Mira sets it up uh, in this episode, because it comes to play later on, you know. Uh, and I like that, <clears throat> you know, as he just averts his gaze, wipes the food she left on her, on her mouth because she also, while he was washing her clothes, she ate his share of the food, you know, spreading himself to sin. He's trying to be, you know, the perfect guy. He doesn't eat. He washes the clothes. He refrains every urges and that participates in him, you know, breaking down and just, you know, getting to that point where he can't take it anymore later on. Yeah, he's like, it's like he's turning himself into a robot. Exactly. And the part with the cloak, uh, I really like that part too, because it, it, to me, it was in contrast to after the eclipse, when they're living in the mine together, and he, that moment with the soup where she drops the soup on herself, mm -hmm. and he kind of rips the clothes off of her. This is like the total opposite of that, where instead of trying to have that connection with her at the cost of her emotional wellness. He's, he's totally taking a step back and being a complete caretaker. Yeah. <laughs> that aspect, you know, the weight of being uh, a caretaker for someone who you used to love who's become an invalid. I feel like that this is um, an element in the story that's worth addressing is that Mira spends time, you know, uh, depicting in these episodes. And that's something you could, he could have just, you know, waved it aside or not spent time of it. But I think that participates again in the fact, you know, Guts just, you know, he, he cannot do it and fight and find food and do everything. And all these little things piled up, uh, you know, make it come to, to the result we see later on. Yeah, it's, it's one of the rare scenes where we do see the actual granularity of Gut's life. We see him, this, these down-to-earth interactions, how he's washing the cloak in the river. But because he's washing the cloak and away from Casca, she ends up eating the fish that's in the fire, which he was also cooking. And then we see him hanging up the cloak. You don't see a lot of those really small, you know, what life is actually like on the road in between battles kind of thing. That doesn't happen a lot. But we still don't see him shave. That's true. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Our guy's got a clean face. <laughs> clean face, clean clean chest, no armpit hair. The little knife, the dagger, is right there. He probably just uses that in the morning, right? Yeah, and he's got uh, he's got another dagger in his uh, pouch as well. So <laughs> who knows? Anyway, uh, one thing that's interesting in this episode is it's uh, it's the first mention of uh, Elf Helm, you know, by name. So, um, because when Puck first mentions it, he just says, you know, my home, but here he mentions Elf Helm and the kanji he uses for Helm is, uh, the one for hometown in, in Japan. So that's interesting. In later volume, uh, it's replaced by another one, uh, which means capital city, but you know, it's not something that's, that's bothering because the main meaning is Elf Helm, which in this case, uh, explains that it's where Puck was born. So that's an interesting uh, tidbit. Yeah, I don't necessarily see any significance there. It's good to note because it is, as you said, the first appearance of the term Elfhelm. Before it was in volume 22, Puck had just said, my home. Um, no word like Elfhelm. So now we've established it's a place with a name. Yeah, and a depiction of the elves. 
Right. One of these, you know, vague ones, which ends up being pretty close to what the actual thing is. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, 17 volumes in advance. Uh, wow. <laughs> there's one little thing I also noted, which is just just a detail, but <clears throat> in the scene when the, the beast uh, is talking to Guts, um, you know, he, he starts saying, you know, do you sleep? Do you dream dreams of him? In the Japanese version, he actually says dreams of Griffiths. You know, do you dream of Griffiths? And uh, for some reason, uh, the Dark Horse version just replaced that with him. Mm. That's because, you know, what Mira did is he used uh, Katakana for Griffiths, but, but Furigana, that says him, you know, to imply, you know, it's a way in Japanese where you can say two words at once. And so in this case, you know, Dark Horse chose to use, you know, the ver- you know version that says him instead of Griffiths. But um, yeah, it's just an interesting little tidbit where the Japanese version gives you more context, you know. Uh, it's something that can't be translated to other languages. Wow. I mean, that being said, he doesn't say Griffith explicitly in the Dark Horse until the next page. But it's not as if it's in question who the him is. It was like an editorial decision on their part to not make it explicit until, for, for whatever reason, until later. Um, but yeah, it is a little strange. Um, about that dream sequence, what I thought was interesting as I was rereading this was there's this little light effect in, in Gut's eye whenever the beast is speaking. Uh, so it's like a kind of this glazed look in his eyes as if the beast is the one taking the action right now and Gut's merely a witness or to, to what's happening. So he can't really do anything until he screams at the very end and, and breaks himself out of the dream. Yeah, I also think it implies that he's just fixed on the fire, you know? Hmm. It's interesting how Mira does that because it's not like it's two characters conversing. It's it's gut psyche, you know, manifesting and speaking in a way. It's not like they're having a talk, really. The beast is talking to guts. And it's not like guts and the beast ever have a tete a tete kind of conversation necessarily. Yeah, well, I mean he does uh, he does these things a few times. You know, in volume seventeen in the cave, you know, you got this mm-hmm. one, you got the one on the on the seahorse, uh, and uh, and yeah, it's it's, it's usually how to say uh, unilateral. You know, it's just a beast, you know, conveying a message. Uh, what's interesting here is, like you said, he's sleeping, and basically the, the beast is manifesting in part because uh, of uh, an incubus who's uh, you know uh, sending him these you know uh, nightmarish thoughts, and, and that allows the beast to manifest. And <clears throat> what's interesting is. As the story goes on, uh, that part of his psyche uh, seems to become stronger, you know, little by little. And of course, when he gets the armor, it's, you know, it goes into overdrive because now it has a a way, that part of him has a way to assert itself more more easily. So I think that's interesting to see this progression, like you mentioned at the beginning, you know, from volume 16 when it first appears, 17. Then he's got, you know, the quest to rescue her. And then as he's with her and he starts to deviate from his, you know, quest of revenge, you know, his self-destructive quest, then that side of him starts rebelling against him, against him basically and saying, you know, why are you doing this? Let's go back. Let's go back and pursue Griffiths. It's such a powerful image or it's a powerful character design for the Beast that it's tough to go back and consider that before this volume, the Beast was kind of a vague apparition. Uh, it was an amorphous blob when we first saw it because it was composed of specters. And in volume 17, it almost looked like a dragon to a certain extent. And here it solidifies around 
canine features. Uh, they're exaggerated to be monstrous ultimately, but it's, it's still amorphous. And it, it starts as almost a puppy whenever it comes up to guts from the fire. But its focus has also changed because when it initially was just urging guts to continue down his quest for revenge and his quest for um, to, to continue killing. But now it recognizes that Casca is an existential threat to itself and a barrier for the revenge that it wants or it's, it hungers for. So it seeks to eliminate her. It's just taking the most direct path back to the revenge. It, know, it knows it needs to eliminate this barrier before it can continue. Yeah, I, I do like, like you mentioned, the fact it's uh, it's very polymorphous where it starts as a cute little puppy and uh, when it, it bites her neck off, it's these kind of Huge. monstrous things that doesn't really look like anything. You know, like you see that triangular face, it's a really... And it's, like you said, it's a very unique design, especially the, you know, the, the Z-shaped eye is uh, very iconic. So, um, yeah, very, very powerful. Yeah. Um, that's the NZ episode by putting his hand on Casca and saying as if that could ever be. Uh, doubting it, though. Like the, begin- the doubt is beginning to, to take hold in him, and that takes, you know, a hold of him throughout the next three or four episodes. So that's where I'm going to end it for this one. I'm going to pass a torch to Azil if you could continue with part two. For sure. I just have one last thing to say about this episode is that uh, establishes a notion that Puck is not super reliable in this context, <laughs> even when he tries his best. Because, you know, uh, basically when Guts, he has to sleep and rest at some point. And so he has to rely on Puck to uh, stand guard. And we see several times that, you know, despite, you know, his best attempts, Puck is not, he can't do it very reliably. First, because he's small and he can't really stop Casca physically. And second, because by nature, he's an elf. So he's not very good at fighting against monsters. And he's also just whimsical. And just not good at staying awake. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, pretty much. I mean, among many other things. So, you know, I think it's important to point this out because it also participates in the general way the things go. Anyway, Winter Journey... Uh, two. So the episode starts again with Guts fighting evil spirits while Puck attempts to protect Casca and keep her safe. Um, but Casca sees a rat and goes out to uh, goes out of her hiding place to try and catch it, which prompts the spirits to rush to possess her. Uh, Gus jumps in to protect her and gets possessed in her stead, and under the influence and out of the beast of darkness, he starts strangling her. He manages to regain control of himself pretty quickly and exposes them from the body and then down breaks and they disappear. Casca's fine, but the damage to their relationship is done. We cut to later of that day as Puck and Gus follow her from afar. Because they can't let her run around as she wants, Puck, uh, Gus decides to tie her up for uh, her own good. Uh, Puck remarks that she'll only hate Gus more. But, you know, there's no other choice. They have to keep moving quickly and she must be kept safe. So uh, Gus makes that call. We see time elapse again through night fights as Gus reflects on his situation. He knew the journey would be hard, but, you know, he feels the pressure more and more in spite of that. Pressure to protect her at all costs, but also not to die because his death would mean her death as well. And he says that his sword has never felt that heavy. Finally, as they rest under a bridge, he dozes off and she tries to grab his dagger. He reflexively smacks it out of her hand, but he also hits her in the face as he does by mistake. And, you know, as he sees her resentful glare, he reflects that he had hoped throughout all of this that maybe they'd be able to reconnect, but now she seems so far away. 
I think what's important in this episode is a repetition of that routine because it's not just one night, one event. It's continuous, you know. It's every night for, you know, eight hours, nine hours. He has to fight, fight. And each time these situations could happen, each time there's a little more pressure and that takes a toll on him. Uh, I also like that uh, we see Puck uh, reflect on how Gus is more serious than he used to be. And, you know, we see at the time that Gus is thinking back to his inner dialogue with the Beast, uh, saying it's absurd, you know, that he, he would never want her to die. So what do you guys think? I've always kind of had an issue with the the way the sequence of events happens because this one, this possession kind of complicates the core issue. Uh, if the, the core conflict here is between Guts and the Beast, and if it's an internal struggle, then why complicate it by involving the Spectre possession? That's, that's always kind of how I approach this. Because it makes it seem less like just Guts himself? Correct. It involves a third party to making this, you know, this situation. And I think it does. I do think that leads to confusion among readers. Like, oh, well, you know, whenever he attacked Casca, he was just possessed. Like, no, no, that's not, that's not what happened. Like, I do think the possession is the external threat and it's what can happen any night to anybody. So it's proper for readers to see the potential of that. But beyond that, I think it initiates the process of distancing Casca from guts, which adds to his stress and makes him have to take a more drastic punishing measures to keep her safe. That basically creates a chain reaction leading to the scenario that, that we have in the next episode. But I do think that possession leads to some confusion among readers about the actual nature of what the beast is to guts. Yeah. Based on what we hear on the forum occasionally, that is the case. I, I think it makes sense that it happens like that. I understand what you're saying, but the thing is, so Gus, he has his part of darkness within him, you know, his part that, uh, you know, is basically his death drive, you know, uh, Freud would say. So it was a part of him that wants, you know, the destruction of everything he holds dear and self-destruction as a result of his trauma. And it's not realistic that he would just try to strangle her out of, you know, like without a reason because he still loves her more than he wants her dead. You know, it's just a part of him that's got this dark desires. So using specters for that, you know, it allows to show that this part of him could manifest. And like you said, Walter, it's also a threat that's permanent because Zerpa is basically fighting as his evil spirits all the time. But uh, one thing that I, you know, do, I've wondered often if Mura, like he wrote that episode and he was like, eh, I'm kind of, uh, you know, I'm not going far enough. Basically, it's not, it's not enough. <laughs> like, it's not enough to justify what's going to come, which is, you know, uh, she's going to resent him permanently and he's going to need to uh, bring in more people. And so he decided to go, well, in that case, you know, I'll, I'll do a step more where Guts himself, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there won't be any way, leeway to interpret it as, oh, it wasn't Guts' fault, you know. So I've always wondered whether he was like, uh, I need to, I can't just leave it halfway. I need to go full way and show that Guts is not reliable. Mm-hmm. So I've always wondered about that. I, I think that's, a, that's you know, a, a good question. Uh, that, that being said, when you look at the sequence of events, it makes sense that he does this so she distrusts him. And from that point on, she tries to uh, run away. Yeah. And because she tries to run away, that's how she comes into the bandits. Because she comes into the bandits, that's what triggers her to, you know, uh, get into a wire state. And then that's what triggers the rest. 
So, you know, at the same time, it's, it's all a very logical sequence of events. Yeah, honestly, the possession almost is an indirect reason to even have that happen. The, the real cause or the real you know point of it was this further distancing of Guts and Casca, which, as you say, leads to that yeah. culmination, culminating of it. I agree. I mean, it does make sense that it would take place through a, a possession because it's already been established in the series that this is what happens, you know, when people, when specters get away, you know, people start doing, you know, this crazy shit. It's an obvious but small thing I wanted to point out is the reason that Guts gets possessed is that Casca try, escapes her safe place, which is between two rocks, to chase after a rat. So Guts had to deal with a sudden new variable and he swings to protect her and that's when he gets struck. So like he's trying his best, but you can't keep throwing wrenches in the gears and expect him to keep coming out on top, you know. So that eventually something like this is going to happen. Yeah. Just a small mistake. Another thing I wanted to point out is that um, when the when we first see the beast, it's manifested through uh, evil spirits. So there's this kind of running theme, you know, of them being uh, a way for the dark thoughts, dark desires of humans to manifest. You know, for example, you see what happens when uh, Fornese gets possessed in uh, Volume 17. You know, she sits on top of the Dragon Slayer and, you know, does all that stuff, gives a little speech. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, yeah, I think it makes sense, you know, for it to happen in, in that uh, sequence. I really like the paneling between when Guts strangles her. We have this uh, two vertical panels. One is Guts with his mouth open, his eyes enraged, and we have Casco on the other side. But in the in the middle and behind those panels, layered is the beast's eye and the teeth. I really like how he did that. Like that's the underlying like urge yeah. that's kind of controlling <clears throat> this moment is the beast kind of taking this moment to seize uh, the events. Yeah, yeah I, I had written that down. It's a it's a really powerful page. It's my favorite in this episode. Was his face with you know the you know the white eye that's getting deformed you know it evokes uh, you know the, his white eye when he's fighting it also evokes a beast you see the beast behind and of course Casca's face you know surprised by what he's doing so I think it's a really you know magnificent page. Uh, a couple other visuals that were really cool I do like uh, when Casca kindly finally comes back awake. From the attack, she has this single panel by herself where she looks very distant from Guts. Um, I don't know how to describe it. It's the one where she looks uh, scared, you know, she's like, yeah. her is very black. Yeah, it's also very, very strong. Yeah. Betrayed. She looks betrayed. Yeah. Uh, and that's and that's what this is. I mean, all the, all the goodwill that Guts has been mustering over these, you know, weeks, months, whatever it's been, you know, just got cashed in and thrown away, basically. Yeah, it's yeah. really heartbreaking, that panel. Mm-hmm. One other thing I like is uh, when she comes to, you know, you see Guts' face reflected in her purple. Yeah. And uh, it's something it's something Mira's done a, a few times, but uh, I really like what it's done here, you know. You see his face worried, and then there's a scream, and she's away from him. I think it's, uh, it's very powerful. Yeah. There's a couple interesting montage moments in here. We don't get a lot of this, but, but we see, like, what's effectively, like, four different, you know, encounters or nights, probably. Uh, as they're traveling. So a lot of time is passing here. I like the barn one the most, though. Like, Guts is fighting these, like, possessed farmers that were holding pitchfork. It kind of looks like Dark Souls, to be <laughs> honest. Um, and they're fighting in a barn. Actually, it looks more like Bloodborne than Dark Souls, <laughs> uh, if we're being honest. Um, but also, I really like, of course, the the shot in the rain where Guts is asking, has his sword ever been so heavy? Yeah. Uh, with the rain and the wind, you know, kind of weighing down the Dragon Slayer. I really like that effect. It's iconic nowadays. 
One other thing I like is that throughout the night, you see that Casca's distrust of Gus does not get any better. And that's in part because her condition leads her to misinterpret things, you know, like uh, when, uh, you know, they're fighting by the tree and uh, there's a, a specter crawling towards her and he throws a, a, a knife, you know, it hits right near her face and you see her eye, you know, as she's startled, you know, and that's, yeah. you know, that's, I think, a, a subtle way to show that, you know, she... Whatever is doing, you know, because of her condition, it's complicated for for them to have a relationship anyway. Yeah, I mean, it leads to me wondering what's best for Casca. It's not this. It's not being around a scary guy who's always has you know fights every night and throwing knives an inch away from her face, even if it is for her own good to save her. This is just a bad scenario for her, you know, and even mm. if she could, you know, of course she could be killed by the man that's trying to protect her at any moment because he could be possessed by his ghosts. But just this ain't a bad, this isn't a good place for her to be. Yeah. Know? And even without that, you know, I mean, when we see, for example, when she drops, uh, when, when he's fighting the snowman, you know, and he has to slash them above her head, you know, it's, you know, all these little, you know, scenes show us that, you know, there's always a danger. So, <clears throat> one last thing I want to say about this episode before we let it go is that, uh, you know, when they're traveling, when she's running away from them, you know, and they're following her from a distance, Puck tries to comfort Gus, saying it's just something the evil spirits uh, compelled him mm -hmm. to do. <laughs> and, and you see that Gus is doubting, doubting himself, you know, he's saying, can, can I really be sure that it wasn't me, that some part of me didn't desire this? I like the fact that even at this point, Mira shows Guts doubting his judgment, doubting his ability to, you know, stay sane uh, in this context. And I think that shows, you know, um, a big maturity, a big, you know, reflection uh, on the part of Guts, you know, that he's worried about himself in this case. Yeah. Uh, it also just shows, I'm sorry, Grail, I just No, not at all. Uh, I, there were just a couple of things that I wanted to touch on in relation to this, also on the following page when, you know, Guts finally catches up with her and binds her hands, one important note for the reader is that Puck is saying that it's kind of, it's it's no better than the witch hunt, which I think was actually a really interesting thing that he brought up because, like you're saying, this whole situation is not working because ultimately Casca isn't happy and Casca doesn't feel safe. Yeah. Which it was, you know, Guts's mission at the beginning to just make sure she was safe, and now that that is already no longer being addressed, so things had to change. Um, so I thought that was a cool note. Indeed, and uh, I think you'll get to it in the next episode. But he's got his recurring uh, thought uh, that comes later on, which is when was the last time she smiled? Right. You know, that's something that comes up afterwards. The fact it's just miserable so, for her to stay. Yeah, it's just piling on top of both of them. So, of course, Gus, Guts is stressed out and, and in a horrible place, but Casca is also in a horrible place. So it's not working for anybody. Indeed. Uh, one thing I, I also wanted to touch on was the dagger scene. You guys touched on that briefly where he bats her hand away. Mm -hmm. The fact that Casca goes for the dagger in the first place was an interesting point for me. Uh, as you're observing here as the reader... Do you feel like that was a little bit of her "quote unquote" warrior state coming out, or what? What was that? It's hard to say. I don't. It's, it's hard to define the limits of what she can and can't process in that state as um, Elaine. Yeah. Uh, we see her gnawing at them earlier in this episode, but you're right. This is this is a tool based manipulation at this point. Uh, 
I think it's within her capacity to do that. But yeah, it does draw attention to itself for sure. You know what? I'd say that she can pull memories and she has a instinctive uh, memories of how to use certain things that come up from time to time. So I think in this case, and what's interesting is that it's not like she was trying to harm Gus with this. She was taking the yeah. dagger to cut her, you know, uh, her ties and escape, you know. Right, for sure. And, uh, in, and yeah, I would say I would say it's some things that she remembers from, you know, instinctively from her time as as Casca. You know, it's just some things that she knows a knife can cut, and she knows she can cut rope with that. Yeah. So, so her that, that's how I I feel about yeah, it. Yeah, her brain is just pulling the information that it needs in that moment, and that that kind of right. foreshadows nice what what can happen later. Yeah, exactly, and it's also you know if you remember. Uh, we got a great scene uh, during the conviction arc where Isidro is trying to lower up with a rope. He's having trouble and she just by herself, you know, uh, let go of the rope and she just jumped down a very, you know, uh, nimble, uh, a nimble way. And, uh, and everybody's impressed. And it's because she, I mean, she used to be this kind of woman, you know, and she can still sometimes reflexively she'll do it. Yeah. yeah. I think that's like muscle memory of knowing what will happen with my body when I throw it down this distance, you know, that kind of thing, being aware of your yes. body, which yeah. comes from, you know, gymnasts and things right. like that. Yeah. Uh, just quickly, there's also, you know, uh, later on when uh, she's traveling with the group, you know, there's that scene where she goes in the forest, Farnese gets lost and she she just huddled up in a tree and they say, oh, Casca just came back when she was hungry. And <laughs> it's because, you know, Casca, she's, a, she's got a mind, a child's mind, you know, but she's still got an instinct. So she can still find a way in the forest. Just because she's angry, you know, she should come back to the group. So that, that's one of the things she can do. Yeah. The last thing I, I have to say about this episode is under the bridge, we get a small inkling of what Guts, you know, master plan was with getting Casca back. You know, we see earlier in this volume how he just wanted Casca back in his arms to make sure she was safe. But beyond that, like, what's his master plan to you know, rekindle his relationship with Casca? And he says, basically, he implies I thought that we could reconnect on this journey, you know, that, that maybe that would be a way to bring her back. Maybe that would be a way to rekindle our relationship is over the course of being together in close proximity, I could make her realize, hey, we used to be a couple, you used to be Casco to me, uh, but that's just completely on fire yeah. right now. Just <laughs> yeah. so distant. This this plan of his just has not worked out. Not happening. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good point. He intended to, by spending time together, that she w- would warm up to him further up, and maybe you know, who knows? It, it's it's funny because it's it just it feels you know very naive, you know, almost in a way. But uh, I mean, can you can you fold the guy from you know having that hope? Uh, yeah, I mean, this was this was many volumes before we learned that a cure is possible for her. Uh, there's no hope for him. His, the hope for him is to be with the woman he loves and protect her. Because the alternative is letting her die, so it makes sense. But you're right; it's a desperate hope. Yeah, and he he didn't want to to leave her, how to say, leave her alone. But at the same time, he also like he wasn't ready at that point to just give up and think, oh, she'll she'll stay like that, you know, forever from now on. She'll just be this mindless woman, you know. He still, you know, uh, clang to the hope she might be, you know, restored mm-hmm. to who she was. Well, Grail, uh, up to you. Here I am. All right. We are at the not the next episode, which is called, I have it written down here, Overflowing Time. With the start of this episode, we see Guts continuing to reflect on 
the situation that he and Casca find themselves in. Guts is fatigued beyond belief. He is emotionally fatigued, physically fatigued, every kind of fatigued. <laughs> and, you know, he's, he's, at the, he's at his emotional breaking point, in my opinion, where it's, it's just waiting for a moment that's just going to bring everything to a head, which it does. Uh, Puck wakes up Guts after he's dozed off to tell him that Casca has run off again. Uh, she's, you know, untied herself from her bond somehow, and she's gone. So immediately, Guts is terrified at the prospect of losing Casca or her being in danger somehow. Uh, we cut to a band of thieves who are down, in their down on their luck, uh, given the whole uh, war with Kushan situation. And they're just sort of hanging out, thinking about what they're going to do next. And lo and behold, Casca, who is eating very well in this volume, pops up and begins eating their dried meat. And... They notice that she's a pretty good-looking lady, and so they decide that she's a gift from God to the lowly thieves, and so they're going to take advantage of the situation and, and take advantage of her. Yeah, the, the God thing is because she's wearing a pilgrim outfit, they say. She's dressed yeah. as a pilgrim, and so they take that as a sign. Um, Guts is continuing to search for her. He reflects on how he has failed her. He's really beating himself up right now, thinking about how he left her in the darkness and all of this is a result of his negligence and basically being way too hard on himself. But this is the result of him freaking out and thinking, what could I have done differently? And in, in his mad attempt to get to Casca, we cut back to Casca and the thieves where they're taking off her clothes. They're fondling her. The leader of the thieves is, is hovering over her menacingly. And Casca uh, immediately is taken back to the moment of the eclipse and being assaulted and being molested by the apostles. And she screams out. Guts is close enough to hear her now. And he runs over to find a pretty uh, unbelievable sight. Casca is naked, covered in blood, holding a sword, very much like how she would have hold held a sword in the old days, with the three thieves dead at her feet. Guts takes a, a few moments to kind of take in the situation. We see that uh, we get a close-up of her breast and her nether regions and the tip of the sword covered in blood and the dead men at her feet. And uh, this is kind of the moment that we were talking about earlier where it's kind of hard to talk about because it, it really makes Guts not look great. But I think that he might be starting to find the whole situation a little bit of a... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's turned on. Yeah. He, it's 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 kindling feelings in him that you know he's been trying to repress. Right, and so guts trying to approach her, she lunges at him. Uh, he handily dodges her attack, uh, pins her to the ground, and loses himself in the situation, the stress, the overwhelming emotions he must be going through. She scratches his face while she's pinned down. Uh, his eyes glaze over like in the previous episode as the beast takes over and he forcefully kisses her. And that's where we're left for the end of the episode. With her, but she doesn't say no. She just goes, mm, you know. Muffled against him. But you can see her, her fist is in a ball. She's, her face is scrunched. She really wants to get away from him. To, to get to the uh, how to say, heart of the issue, I think the fact she's killed those guys 
and then ataxin is determinant to explain what happens uh, with guts. Sure. Because seeing her in that state, uh, while you're like like her old self and naked, obviously, uh, I think that's what pushes him over the edge and, and drives him to kiss her against her will in, in this case. Mm. You know, it's not necessarily the fact of blood is exciting him or something like that, but it's the fact she's both naked and also that she's, I mean, she looks like she's back to being Casca, you know? Yeah. Totally. Yeah, the way I think for me, what kind of sells this moment is not just the fact that the sword's in her hand, but also when she turns to face him, the way she draws her sword to to him. And yeah. it looks very much like you might expect Casca to, to look. So yeah, it, it's almost as if for that moment that she was back. And he might even wonder if she's back or not, but he doesn't care at a certain point. Yeah, it's that moment of ambiguity that kind of pushes things. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I like that you mentioned how he reflects while he's searching for her. He reflects on how he has no way to make up for the time he left her alone. And he chastises himself for having abandoned her, essentially like viewing the current situation as being something important to himself. I find that interesting because, uh, of course, there's truth to it, obviously. But in the way it's done, like you said, he's uh, beating himself up way too hard uh, compared to the situation. But I think him having those these thoughts while he's desperately searching for her in this uh, urgent case, it's like super realistic because it is. It's not the right time for him to do it, but he does it reflexively. And I feel like my personal experience, it's exactly what people do in real life. It is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and, and that's and that's so effective. You know, it's like you get into an argument with your wife. And then, I don't know, she's got, like, she got a car accident and you're like, oh, what have I done? It's all my fault. I mean, it's just some bullshit example I'm making up. But it just feels so real and so, so effective. You know, I feel like it's exceptional the way it's done. And I'm just, you know, I'm always amazed at that, at that scene. I don't know who Mira pulled it off, but it just, it's so convincing. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely true. Like, anybody who has lived a life can can relate to that scene where you, lost a pet and you're like, oh my God, what did I do wrong? You're looking at everything that you've done wrong in the past five years <laughs> mm-hmm. and thinking, oh, if I had done something differently or, or, you know, you're just losing your mind. Yeah. It's also funny to me that he's in the middle, he's in the midst of berating himself about personal responsibility and then goes and does what he does, you know, like, right. like mid-sentence between, oh, it's I've been terrible. I was naive to think that this would work. Well, He just proved his own point. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, it's what we were saying earlier is, so that participates in him not being an outright bad guy, you know, even though in that case he does a bad thing. And I think it also shows, like uh, Greg said earlier, that he's at a breaking point. You know, he just, he's like, he knows he shouldn't be doing this thing. He knows he's not good. He knows uh, things are going bad. And, And yet, even in that context, he still snaps. You know, even though he doesn't want to. And and I, I feel like that's, uh, you know, that exemplifies the fact he's at a breaking point and he can't, he just can't uh, deal with it anymore. Yeah. And I was as I was reading uh, this part of the volume, I kept thinking back in, in terms of like going to an emotional breaking point, getting to the point of kind of quote unquote, no return and doing something drastic. It made me think of uh, Griffith after he was tortured and rescued by the end of the falcon and how he kind of goes through not something similar but i guess something comparable in terms of like he is doing okay for a while and then it gets really really bad and he just loses it 
And yeah. I, I kind of felt like Guts went through something here, which might be considered comparable because he's starting out, he's thinking it's going to be okay. The situation gets worse and worse and worse, not necessarily because of something he's doing, but because maybe his intentions were not realistic in, in terms of the logistics of it. Well, I do think Griff is, like, he shows signs of being unhinged earlier on, you know, yes. and you're not quite sure. The way Mira does it is you're not quite sure. He's like, oh, he seems okay. He seems normal. You know, he s- signals Pippin about, you know, the you know, hole in the tunnel, that kind of stuff. And, and you know, and yet sometimes you see he's looking at Guts and Casca and you can clearly tell he's something, something's going on. So, but yeah, I understand. I understand what you mean. I think it's different because with Griffith, it's I think it's intentionally ambiguous the way he's closed off Griffith's mind to readers after the the yes, torture that's a good point. after he comes back to us. Mm-hmm. Whereas for Guts, we almost know him in perfect clarity what his motives and intentions he's are. He's telling us what he's thinking the whole time. Yeah, that is a key difference. Yeah, it's because Guts is a main character. <laughs> yes, certainly, certainly. <laughs> so as we mentioned earlier, there's a lot of things that are ballsy about this whole. Uh, you know, scene. Uh, one thing which I find impressive is uh, how Mira depicts uh, the scene of the attempted rape, where it starts up being very, you know, it's depicted uh, very coldly. It's a cold depiction of what's going on. You see them address her, you see them, you know, grabbing her breast, you know, forcibly pulling her legs apart. And then there's this transformation uh, into Casca's perception. You know, it's her perception. So you see that face. That becomes monstrous, you know, the tongue transforms into some apostle appendage. You know, you see her eyes and her face, you know, something's washing over her, you know, as she's got this recollection of, and then, of course, there's the, this uh, artistic view of the eclipse, you know, for her being held by the apostles and stuff. And, um, and yeah, I, I find that, you know, visually, that's, uh, that's very, very effective. I also find this is episode, Murat doesn't shy away. I mean, he goes as close to to he can to what he can do uh, of showing nudity, you know. Yeah. Uh, yes. And uh, that's again that's something you know that's a choice. He's he will depict blood and stuff, and he also doesn't shy away from depicting nudity, especially in cases like these when they are trying to rape her. There's also, you know, you see her breast covered in blood. Uh, you see blood dropping from the sword. You see blood dropping from. Her, you know, uh, neither region, as you said, Grail, you know, that kind of stuff. And and that's, again, you know, it's something that's a very, how to say, again, very realistic, you know, uh, in, a, in a way, you know, to show these things. And uh, I find it interesting. And especially the fact you, we, we don't spend a, a lot of time looking at the dead bodies, you know. You just see these guys, that they've got their throats cut. And we immediately focus on her, you know, on what Casca has gone through. Her state of mind, yeah, I just, I just find it interesting. Well, those three, it is interesting because they were all killed around their mouth region, like through, you know, basically she struck around their armor points. You know, she struck one of them through the neck, one of them across the mouth, one of them through the neck or the mouth is not clear, but she ignored the armor points uh, because she knew that would work. Basically, you know, it's, yeah. it's very intentionally uh, uh, killed. Them. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think again, it's like what we said earlier, reflexively. Like, because she was in danger, she just, you know, she could pull from her knowledge as a source woman, mm-hmm. and she just, she killed them like that, yeah. I wanted to go back to the Eclipse thing real quick, because I think it's important to break down exactly what's happening. Uh, that when this scene starts and the man grabs her by the arms, 
uh, you see this little effect happening behind her as if she's aware of this sensation, you know, this, this, this weird moment she's being put in. And then she screams. She doesn't know necessarily what, to, what or why is happening, but she remembers this feeling of powerlessness. And that it's that sensation of being held down that then triggers her memory of another traumatic moment in her life where she felt powerless and violated. And that's what brings on the eclipse thing. It's this image that she's tried to repress in her mind and that takes her over from there. Yeah. And it makes sense that because the eclipse is evoked, she taps into who she was, you know, who was broken, the, the real Casca. Yeah, exactly. The transition, I just wanted to point out as well, between her pupil to the black moon or the black sun behind her as well. I thought that was a cool transition. Mira does that all the time. That's not new, but uh, I like yeah. that. It's cool. well, yeah, he does it all the time, but it's always cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's one of these that's, uh, that's always great, you know. Yeah. Uh, another thing I wanted to point out, uh, which we, we mentioned in passing earlier, is that we see, you know, Mira does a thing between the tension, you know, like the extraordinary tension of the scene of, you know, Casca being vulnerable to the thugs. There's still little comedic elements. They're talking about how they don't have much food. She grabs uh, the stuff. She starts eating the dried meat. And you see one of these guys like, oh, no, I was keeping like, the best stuff I have. I was keeping it. Yeah. And it, even as they're like, you know, considering raping her, the guy's still like, oh, my meat. Oh, <laughs> I think it's a it's an interesting and effective way to kind of relieve the tension a little bit as you're building it, yeah, yeah, and, and also to show the how to say, uh, you know, the contrast between how Casca is all the time and how she's around Gus. You know, the kind of she doesn't care about anything; she's carefree. She just gets the food because she wants to eat, and you know, the danger of the world where you know these guys, you know get real serious and you know they say they just say oh, well yeah, i guess we'll just rape her you know it kind of reminds me of uh isidro in the pirates uh in the you know the port of uh Britannis, you know when he cuts one of them down and he feels the atmosphere changing and he's like it's not the same now it's not like cutting ghosts or stuff he's like i've got a guy and he's getting serious about killing me you know and i feel like this is a same kind of atmosphere switch here yeah which i find interesting that's an interesting point. I don't think that eating the the jerky was just nothing, though. Like I, we colored it as a funny line, and it is funny. I laughed when he did it as well. But it's also like now it's retribution. Like you ate my meat, so we have to take something from you now. That kind of thing. Also, they're desperate. You know, they just talk about they wanted to go to a, a town where there's women and, and food. So they're low on food, and they're 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 low on companionship. They're just gonna take what they can, basically. I think it colors their state. Yeah, and the state of the of the entire region, probably. I thought that was a neat uh, inclusion yeah. for Mira to say. It, it kind of ties into the to the later episodes in this volume, where you know that things are bad, but this guts and Casca are relatively isolated from the political situation right now. They're kind of off in their own little world, and then you get this reminder that things are really bad for everybody right now. Yeah, and there's a, another thing which uh, is easy to, to skip or miss is that we see a lot of desolate landscapes here. We see dead trees, broken down trees, broken down buildings. So obviously Gutson, you know, he's trying to avoid populated areas, but it also uh, tells a little tale of uh, a land that has been through a lot, you know, which is something, of course, we... We see uh, in, in volume 17, you know, with the war effort, you know, the fact the king hasn't been very effective in, uh, you know, bringing relief to the people. And so it's, it's also, again, you know, going back to that poster at the beginning of the volume, 
it's a very desolate, you know, that whole volume, you know, Gus and Casca goes through desolate landscapes. Yeah. This volume has such a sense of place or, or time or mood because of that scenery throughout the whole volume. You know, it's it hits you over the head many, many times. When you see a, tw- a tree, it's just a twig or it's dead. You know, winter is here and, and everything on the road is either dead or dying or it's all windswept. And I think as the it's, you know, it ties thematically back to Gut's mood, basically. It's desperate and bleak and his scenario with, with Casca is similarly bleak. Right. And, and it's consistent from the last volume too, where, where Farnese and Serpico were reflecting on these times and it's very wintry all around. It's almost like a natural sense of the cycle of life and death where Mm -hmm. the characters are reflecting on their past lives, reflecting on their past mistakes. And then as Griffith comes into his kingdom and and spring comes, it's uh, spring for them too, in a way, because it's a new beginning. Um, Anything else on this? Um, I'm wondering if we could come back to uh, this part is really interesting to me. I, I, whenever I reread this part, I always get stuck on when Casca is when Guts comes upon Casca having killed the thieves, and there's that little breakdown where he sees her covered in blood, holding the sword, and then we see these panels of her breast, her nether regions, the sword covered in blood. Is that Guts kind of assessing the situation, and then yeah, yeah, I think so. and then I think and so. Then yeah. He's like, okay, she's fine. They're dead. This is what happened. Okay, he's trying to come close to her. She takes up the stance with the sword and and looks like she's about to attack him. At at what point do you think the mood shifts and his kind of emotions start to take over? Is it the next page when she's like growling at him? Then we see another panel of her nether regions like dripping with blood. I'm always interested in in hearing people's uh, what they're taking out of that. It's, It's whenever he pins her down, I think, because even up until the moment that she attacks him, He's telling her, quit, or no way, it's her, or no way. Then he says, quit it. Then he pins her down, and then when he gets close to her, then he changes his mood, I think. I would agree with Walter that um, it's when he pins her down. You know, when she, she attacks him, uh, which is something she's done in the past, and he just, you know... Of course, by the way, I need to mention, Puella insisted that I mention this, but there's that famous scene when he trips her, where her boots disappear, and wow. Puella was telling me, I'm the one wow. who noticed it all those years ago, and it should be mentioned in this podcast. Credit so, Puella for noticing the bootless foot. Yeah. So, and the reason I was, you know, she's because I was saying, oh, Griffiths uh, won't be part of this one, so at least we won't have to hear about the boots because that's his. He's obsessed with the boots. He loves the fact that the boots disappeared for a panel. Yeah. So, yeah, in that panel where Gus trips her, uh, she doesn't wear boots while she wears boots in the rest of the scenes. So yeah, this is proof that Miura fucked up with Skull Knight's collar, and uh, oh my god, no, he's not reliable. <laughs> yeah, anything goes. <laughs> Every time we say that Miura is an amazing artist and he's very consistent, is what about a, the boot? Hmm? Yeah, well, he messed up the boots. You forgot Poland. He for, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he forgot the boots on this one panel. Okay, so that's like the cardinal thing. So over. anyway, boot gate. Boot gate. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So anyway, yeah, I agree that to me when he and I think it's very clear uh, because you can see it on his face. Mm-hmm. When when he pins her down, you look at his face when he's pinning her down and something that I've got for the next episode after that. The look on his face, it's the same look that Mira will give to like a random thugs trying to rape a woman or kill somebody. You know, that kind of how to say 
a bit, you know, Fargon look, you know. The glazed eyes. Yeah, uh, yeah, an empty stare, you know, glazed eyes. And he's got that look. And, and you see then on the, the next page, you know, there's got that um, effect in the background. And I think that one, you know, when you see that strange effect is when he's kind of, you know, losing his mind and he decides. And, it, and you know, then she scratches him. Yeah. And he's like, all right, he pins it down. You see that shot of his eyes, you know, glazing over even more. And, and you know, he kisses her. I think that's, that's the point. Now, going back to the shot of her, you know, blood dropping up from uh, her uh, vagina, uh, honestly, <laughs> it's a strange choice of Mira of putting that here. I'm not sure what purpose is. No, I, I get it. It's just it's blood and sex, man. It's just combining both of those things. I mean, I, I think I think the, the purpose it serves here is that uh, Gus has already looked at, you know, her breast, you know, her also pubis and the sword covered in blood. And the fact that blood dropping is something that uh, brings his attention back to this. So, um, but I don't think, because one of the implications could be, well, maybe the guys did start raping her and that's why she's bleeding from there. I don't think so. I, 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 nah. Yeah, I think it's very clear that as soon as she starts having the nightmare, she grabs a sword and, and kills yeah, them. Yeah, it, it was curtains for them before they even got close enough to do anything like that. Yeah, and you know, I mean, they are still wearing their pants and their armor and anything like that. So it's not. I think there's no doubt about that. Oh, you, is that a dong? I can't actually tell <laughs> on the first page. Oh boy. Okay, I'm gonna zoom in. You mean uh, on you the mean first when she's uh, kind of having the starting to have the eclipse nightmare? No, after that. Uh, yeah, I think that's a dong. We got a dong. dong oh, dong yeah. Visible. Oh, that's right. It's like that's playing, right. Where's Waldo? You really gotta. Yeah, it's the bearded guy. Except for those that are listening. Indeed, he he snuck it in. Indeed. <laughs> well, he 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 pulled it out. I don't know if he snuck it in. Well, I was talking about Mura, but oh 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 oh, wrong wrong interpretation. Wrong. So I was saying Mura snuck it in. <laughs> the guy didn't sneak it in. Mura did. <laughs> the guy yeah. didn't do it. The guy, as you can, we can see, it's unblemished and uh, unused. I would say. So uh, he, he could be Jewish for all I can say. I tell you. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> um, I also think that we are, as readers, meant to be parsing guts intent fifteen years down the line. I don't think it's supposed to be clear cut about what the moment was for him to think it was rational for him to do this. He's in a he's a, he was in a, he's an emotional state of doing this act, you know, and it's not cool, but I think it's, uh, explained that he was basically feeling that he was desperate and the woman that he wants is basically put on display for him. Yeah. And it seems in, in a stance that a he, part yeah. of his mind might've believed that too, but clearly he's exhausted. He's yeah. hungry. He's, you know, bad place, you know, mentally and, you know, and he just loses his mind. That's just what happens here. He sees her, She's, you know, she's just killed three morons. She's winging her sword at him. She's covered in blood, like you said. She's naked. You know, she takes a swing at him and he just, you know, he just loses it. Yeah. That's it. He loses his mind. And uh, we'll see in the next episode. Maybe we should start, you know, talking yeah. about it. But the whole thing lasts maybe 30 seconds. It's not like it's a long stuff. It's, you know, by the time he kisses her and then he goes down and he buys a breast, it's maybe 30 seconds, maybe not even that. So it's, he just, you know, he's got this moment, this moment where he snaps. It's it's a very short moment. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go ahead and start. Uh, Azil noted for me the title of the episode is My Fangs with a Furigana for Hungry Demon. 
And her hungry demon, I think you explained that that was a... Yeah, so Pola told me that it's starving demons, basically, and it's a, it's a Buddhist reference. Okay. Anybody speaking Japanese would understand the, the reference pretty clearly. Uh, yeah, that's it. But the, There's the, a Cure song about that as well, actually. Interesting. Yeah. It could be, could be, you know, from the same reference. Oh, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's related. Um, Guts pins Casca down and kisses her as she struggles against him, her feet kind of wobbling up and down in, in protest. And Guts' vision blurs as he has a graphic vision of the beast devouring Casca, morphing parts of himself into the beast, animating the arm, for example, the arm cannon. Uh, when Guts wakes up, a bite mark was left on Casca's breast where it was made in the dream, showing that it was indeed real, not just a, a, a vision. Puck encounters Isidro, Serpico, and Farnese, bringing them back to Guts, and Farnese prostrates herself to Guts. So, yeah, we've talked about this roundabout the entire volume, but it's a heartbreaking scene, and it's also visually very visceral, probably the most graphic and intense of the series, to be honest, given what actually happens here. And depicted in a visual way that's interesting and in, in, in how, what's the word, um, um, evocative, I guess, of sensation, right? Because the, the blood is shown, shown, the teeth are shown going into the skin in a way where you see the protrusions uh, going into the, 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 I don't know what to call it, but when the skin starts forming around the teeth, it looks yeah. very realistic, uh, the depiction of it. And some of the depictions are of inside the mouth. Uh, not outside or interesting angles to show how this is happening, right? Yeah, I actually love that Mira got the tangle of from inside his mouth. I mean, what an idea! But it really looks great. It's in in a series that's very metal. This is the most metal of of berserk scenes, basically. Yeah, wow, it's very sexually violent, you know. And seeing this happen, yeah. even in the form of a vision happening to one of the main characters, it's very hard to look at. Yeah, and it's it's heartbreaking, but it's also disturbing, and it, and it lasts for maybe a page longer than you'd wish yeah. it to. Uh, throughout it, the, the the beast is basically proving to guts what has to be done in order to move forward uh, in a way that's very graphic. And Mira doesn't hold back, and the, the way he depicts it. Yeah, where to start? Once one of the things I like about this is, like I said, is the the way guts face is portrayed here. You know, it's kind of grayed out. Uh, his eyes are glazed over. So I like that Mira didn't shy away and depicted him basically like he depicts villains in the series. You know, mm -hmm. he's not he's not shying away from what's going on here. You know, it's Gus acting as a villain. I do think this scene takes giant balls, like to have your main character sexually assault his love interest, uh, and it shows. You know, I mean, we've seen that Gus is not a perfect human being. He's an anti-hero, but this is by far his least excusable action in the entire series. And like we were saying earlier, there's a, I think there's two aspects to it. There's first his carnal desire for her. Uh, he loves her and he has sexual urges. And like I said earlier, we see that's established before, you know, that he, he desires her, but he, he resists. And, and, um, and, and that's what happens when he kisses her. And then what we see take over as he's, you know, kissing her and, you know, going down is, uh, the beast. And that's a death drive, you know, that the beast embodies. There's a desire for destruction for what he, he holds dear and ultimately of his own self-destruction. Uh, and, and I think, yeah, these two aspects are interesting because he starts with sexual violence where he kisses her against her will. 
And then it moves on to just plain violence, where the beast is trying to entice him uh, to kill her, and that's why he buys her breast. And um, yeah, and it's interesting that she he basically snaps back when she yells. You know, her yells makes him snap back and you know jump back right away. So I find that interesting. Yeah, and the camera shot there right before the reflection is the, the camera is inside the mouth as it's clomping down on the breast, which is interesting visually. Yeah. Yeah. I also I do think it's meant to show that the beast is raping her because of the position that Casca's in uh, on, on both the scenes that we see where they're interacting. It looks to me like that's what's being depicted anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that's what the inter- I mean the depiction uh, is about, but. I don't think it actually takes place. No, it doesn't. Because Guts is, you know, he's, all, yeah, fully he's armored. He's fully dressed. I guess it's just what he, yeah. what the beast wants to do. Yeah. Yeah. To- he got as far as the bite, which we see, and that's what shocks Guts into saying, I. <clears throat> and yeah, and, and the beast, of course, implies that, you know, the whole thing, maybe we should spend some time on it, but the whole idea of the beast is that she should, she should die, you know, so that she can fuel his desire for revenge. And and send him back on his quest, you know, to to get Griffiths, and that's that's basically how the state of mind he had at the beginning of the series, you know, when he starts in the series, and he's basically just, you know, before he meets Puck, he's just randomly pursuing and killing apostles, and he's got no real clear goal, and he's in a in a, in a death spiral, you know, and um, and the beast recognizes that him having companions, and especially. Uh, having Casca with him is a uh, you know uh, an obstacle to to that uh, because the beast n- not just something it's not like he's just his desire to kill Griffiths it's also his desire for his own death you know and his own misery it's a, a kind of a bunch of bad emotions that he, you know incorporates self hatred and you know guilt fear all these kind of things so it's a it's a complex mess even though it's personified in in just this monster. I don't think it's just her death, though, because this is like the evisceration. You know, it's it's very graphic and it's very it's more than just death that's happening here. It's mutilation, and I think that comes from Gut's own mind and your soul being tortured over what he's endured. So we're seeing a reflection of all the pain that he's endured externally now. Um, if it was just the beast wanting to kill Casca and that's it, I mean, it would have just been one big bite and that's over, right? But this was sexually charged as well. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's a mix of Again, it's like uh, you know perversion of his love for her and desire for her, and uh, and what the, the beast part of him uh, truly desires, which is you know destroying everything. Uh, we only really talked about half the episode so far. Right? The first six pages or so, which is the meat of it. A meat of it—that's a bad word in this <laughs> episode. But um, well, I think there's more to say about that. Well, let's not let's not rush it. Grail, what's your what's your take on this? You have you have more to say? Well, I mean, it's it's like you guys have been saying. It's one of those ones that you, one of the parts of the series that you don't look forward to reading about. But I really feel like uh, you guys covered it. I, I don't think there's anything that you missed. It's like you said. It's uh, the the mutilation of Casca's body is is a perversion of Guts's just wanting to have that physical connection again. And I think it's just taking a very dark form in the form of the Beast and and really. Just the physical destruction of her body in all these different ways that he's fantasizing about in the form of the beast is is uh, really intense and 
scary. And seeing that happen to a main character, that's what I keep coming down to is like, Casca is a main character that we've spent a lot of time with and that we're just kind of reacquainting ourselves with with guts. And seeing this happening to her, it's just really like uh, hard to read. And, and as you guys said before, having Mira do this, uh, I think it, it's a, mm-hmm. a real, a big, it's a big move for an author to do this. Because mm-hmm. it, it makes me think of how in other works of art that you sometimes hear like uh, J.K. Rowling talking about Harry Potter characters. She's she's very like emotional, like, oh, I cried when I killed this character. And Mira's like, I'm just doing what I got to do here, Sorry. guys. <laughs> this is the story. Live with it. I remember when he said he didn't feel bad about the band of the Falcon dying because he was like, yeah, you know, that's that's what it mm-hmm. is. <laughs> I, I got um, a couple more things to say. One is that uh, the shot of her face screaming, reflecting his, in his pupil is a, a contrast to, you know, uh, his face in, in reflecting in her pupil when he strangles her. Yeah. So, you know, that's, there's a contrast there, which I think is intentional. The second is that what I find interesting to note is that she's, she's very fired up and defiant after she kills the thugs, you know, she, she's very aggressive. Uh, but when Guts actually overpowers her and bites her, uh, you see that the fight's completely gone out of her. You know, and she looks pitiful. She, she's even got tears in her eyes. Uh, and I think that shows the weight of what is done. These guys try to rape her, but, you know, she overpowers them and kills them. And, you know, she's fine. And she's, you know, she, she's pissed. But after he, you know, forcibly kisses her and, and then bites her breast, She's in a state where she's completely out, you know, and um, and I think that adds to the again to the weight of the scene. Another thing is that that the fact he actually left a mark, like he he beat her pretty bad, you know, she's bleeding from it. Uh, he sees it, and I think that's that's something that makes him, you know him snap. You see that he actually falls to the ground, you know, in that last panel at the, the bottom, he actually falls to his knees. Uh, because of the weight of what is done. And I think it's something we will see addressed in the future. You know, wh- whenever they'll talk about what they have to talk, the two of them, I think the fact she might still have a, have a, a scar, you know, on her breast might be a way addressed, you know, that moment. So I, I think it's a, yeah, a powerful Yeah, a powerful maybe moment. that that would be really interesting because we – uh, this is going way, way far forward, but we don't see her talking or thinking about that incident now that she's lucid. It might come up later, but... Or, or Guts, for that oh, matter. Oh, sure. Never since. Guts is definitely still thinking about it. But I'm saying it hasn't been reminded, yeah. the audience has not been reminded of that particular attack, as far as right. I remember. I, I think I think Mira's waiting to catch that check, but I'm, I'm sure he, he will do it. And another thing that's interesting is that it took place at a time where Puck wasn't there, so there's no witness to that. Mm-hmm. And presumably no one ever knew about it. So it's really something that's between the two of them, which I also find interesting. Yeah, I mean, Puck not being there, that'd be kind of ruinous if Puck was witness to all that, if you can imagine. <laughs> His reaction to seeing Farnese in Volume 17, the little drop-dead face he made versus what they would be for this, it'd be crazy. Yeah. Uh, the scene transitions to Puck flying, still searching for Casca, not knowing that Guts has already found him, um, hunt her. But he actually finds uh, a Citro, uh, who's uh, helping carry the bags and the food uh, for Farnese <laughs> and Serpico at a very fast rate. He's just making sure they're making good time today, I guess. So he's <laughs> effectively running away, though. So 
Puck and Isidro have a little talk, but uh, ultimately he gets tripped up by a perfectly thrown stick by perfect stick thrower Serpico from a distance there. And they complain about who's, you know, what his role was supposed to be. You know, Citro says he was teaching the nobles a lesson, but uh, Serpico said, you know, it seems like some people's fee for carrying the bags is the bags themselves. Pretty funny. <laughs> That's a great line. Pretty good. I do think it's interesting and funny that uh, we're in the moment of a character pivot for, for Farnese, but the, she, the first card that she plays is, well, make sure you chop off his hands, basically, or chop off yeah. his arm. Yeah. <laughs> she goes right for the nobility uh, angle. The pigtails are still on. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I like that she busts she and Serpico out of breath, which shows that, you know, uh, I mean, Isidro, you know, he's just a kid and, and he's... He does a lot of stupid shit, but he's still a pretty good thief, you know? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's fast, for sure. Uh, Puck see, uh, mixes makes himself known to to Farnese, who then finally sees him, and Puck makes a note of, can you see me now? And then she passes out. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I mean, yeah. I, I love that, you know, it's again, it's something Mira could have just avoided referencing, but to have Puck actually show show you know show up and just you know uh, make himself visible to her and her reaction when she just falls back, uh, I don't know. I think that's just great, you know, referencing what what happened in Volume Seventeen. Exactly. I mean, I think it shows how far she strayed from the doctrine of the Holy See. Like her mind is now open to seeing other things and not so rigid. So now she can perceive elves. Indeed. It's interesting to me that it's not that Isidro finds guts by himself or Farnese and Serpico find guts by themselves. Puck is the one to bring them back into the fold, which mm. connects with a larger discussion we've been having overall about you know how instrumental Puck has been in bringing everyone together to Elfhelm over the past you know ten years, whatever it's been. Um, of course, series. So that was a cool moment. Even like this, it works on two levels because of course there's the whole you know. Uh, Faithful roar of Puck, uh, mm-hmm. and there's also the fact that he's flying in the sky, so he has a bird's eye view, and it's easy for him to see people far away fly and bring them back to guts. Whereas otherwise, you know, the uh, eventuality of just Isidro running into guts, you know, in the middle of the countryside, even if they're you know tracking him the same direction, it's uh, not not easy at all. So from from what we see of the sequence of events, it looks like. Quite a bit of time passes between when, uh, you know, uh, Puck and Guts split up, uh, the events happen, and then, you know, Puck brings back everybody. It's like a few hours have passed, maybe. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because it makes it more believable, you know, very simply. It's not like just, hey, what a coincidence, we just met. (laughs) It's like, oh, I saw these guys, I got them, I brought them back. So I I feel like it just, you know, even just from a very practical point of view, it makes it work better that way. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just looking at a Sidro, you know, making his big declaration to Guts. You know, it's time for us to make a deal. I guess he's talking about having Guts pay him back for rescuing Casca from uh, yeah. the, the mob in, in Albion. But you're going to teach me all your secrets and your secret fighting techniques and soon <laughs> now. And then Guts doesn't even bother acknowledging him. He just starts talking to Farnese and Serpico. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally goes over his head. And it's pretty funny that it's also the first, uh, how to say, it's when Puck basically starts tutoring Isidro, you know, I'm doing air quotes here, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, you know, teaching uh, elf dimension style, you know, uh, fighting, you know, his, uh, his special secret technique, which we we see a lot of uh, 
funny names and funny techniques uh, over the next few volumes, you know, based on that, you know, <laughs> where he shows him his bloody needle and everything he can do with that. So, yeah, it's pretty funny. Mm-hmm. It's a nice mix of, you know, comedic relief and lighter conversation after, you know, the very heavy stuff we, we just saw. But we're still reminded of what just happened here because we see Casca here with, uh, she's tied up again. And even when Puck approaches her, she turns her face away, which I thought is really sad. Yeah, in, indeed. Uh, the fact she's disdainful, even of Puck, I think says a lot, you know, about her state of mind. It's very, and even Puck is surprised at it, you know, so... Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, again, it reinforces the weight of the events that just occurred. You know, it's, it's, she's not just scared of Gus anymore. Now she's like a prisoner, you know. She, she's been she's been beaten in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the episode ends with Farnesia making her declaration. You know, she's, it's been on her mind for a while, but now she's formulated it into words that she wants to travel and learn from Guts. And that's the end of the episode. And the next one is Reunion in the Wilderness. And uh, it uh, starts with the same exact shot, but from a different angle, uh, much nicer. And <clears throat> we see Farnese compel Serpico to kneel down as well, with her, which he does reluctantly. Uh, she tells Gus why she sought him. She wants to join him in his travels so that she can learn the truth of the world, which the Holy See doctrine didn't help her with, and so that she can learn to survive in the darkness like he does. Guts uh, stays silent for a while, and it's actually Isidro who openly doubts her intentions and taunts her about it, which prompts her to cut off her braids in a display of determination that actually shocks Isidro and Puck and pretty much silences him. Uh, Gus, on you know, reacts very pragmatically. He just tells her to do whatever he wants. She wants, uh, and Puck knows that he doesn't like him to accept people so readily. And, and you know, Gus, you know, monologue reveals that he's only doing it because he's got no other choice. He doesn't trust himself anymore. He feels powerless. And it ends on that repeated note, when was the last time she smiled? What I like about it is some things that I said before. The whole sequence of events makes it feel completely natural that Gus accepts these people joining him. Because his reasoning is right. You know, he's desperate. He doesn't have a choice. And this is also the beauty, if you pardon the expression of the uh, sequence of five episodes. They serve as a transition, like I said before, from a fiercely independent guts who doesn't need anyone to a man without a choice who has to accept uh, people again in his life because that's what he needs to protect Casca, which is his objective. And so it's done in this way that's uh, super efficient because it ends up feeling inevitable to the reader, even though it's just done in five episodes. Um, what do you guys think? Well, it's a lot to take in. My favorite little moment here was something I caught only on this reread, and that is when Farnese is explaining what she wants to do here. Uh, off to the side, there's an internal monologue. She's, I want to learn a way to survive in the darkness where the light of the order does not reach. And then she says, from you. She wants to learn blah, 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 from you, Guts. You know, the the, the point there is Guts <clears throat> being the guy. Yeah. And I, I like his reaction. Because, you know, it's, uh, you know, you can contrast that to Griffiths, who's appearing as a, as a messiah, you know, a man to follow. And Gus is very, he's like, you know, do whatever you want. I don't need apologies. I don't need payback. I've also killed, you know, your uh, men, we're even. And I, I've got no way to show you. That's not what I do. And also, you might regret 
following me soon enough because you won't have a good night's sleep ever again in your life. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's, it's very, I mean, it's very gut. He's, even though he's accepting them, he's still very, being very, let's say, gruff about it, you know? Yeah, and it's an interesting contrast since the, the forming of Griffith's army and the forming of Guts's band are happening in the same time. And you, yeah, and you've got uh, you've got Ishiro who's, uh, you know, he's pumped up about fighting, you know, demons and monsters. <laughs> and Gus is like, yeah, we'll see about that. You know, maybe maybe you won't be so excited, you know, after a couple of them nights. Yeah. Guts is playing it pretty cool also, considering everything that's just happened. It's like he, he really composed himself, at least outwardly. I don't know. He seems... He seems affected to me in this scene. He's he's even more downcast than you might expect. Yeah. I think. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, he's very depressed, and he's actual. Uh, when we you see his internal monologue, he's a uh, it's something rare because he sounds like a beaten man. You know, he's yeah. he's like you know I, I give up. You know, I'm I just he sings back to the beast. You know, and he's just you know he's disgusted with himself. He's you know he's at his wit's end so much so that he's counting on these guys. Because he he can't do it uh, by himself anymore, and that's something I mentioned earlier. It's an issue that I think is rarely discussed uh, in fiction. It's a weight of taking care of a loved one who's become an invalid, you know, and of the isolation and alienation that results from it. Uh, you know, being a, a lone caretaker of, of of someone like that, it it just grinds you down into dust. And I think it's also something Mira intended to show here. The way Casca, you know, she doesn't, she resents him for things that are not his fault necessarily. She doesn't thank him for what he does for her. You know, she, she doesn't know any better. And on his side, he is frustrated because he's got desires he can't, uh, you know, uh, how to say, fulfill. So it's, it's a very, very, I, I think it's very nuanced, you know, the whole thing, even though what people, the only thing people might get from it is, well, you know, just you guys just tried to rape Casca, but it's actually when you look at the sequence of five episodes, it's there's a lot of stuff in it and it's very nuanced. It's interesting that everyone comments and notes how quickly that Guts had accepted the offer. Because the Serpico has a little, you know, silent pause, and then uh Isidro comments, Oh, that was fast, uh, in a little comical face. And then later Puck notes that it was odd for Guts to accept so readily. Uh, all of which we know the answer to, but the fact that everyone noticed that it was uncharacteristic of Guts to accept it without a fight uh, means something must have happened. Yeah. And of course, like you said, Sepulchre's reaction to that is interesting uh, in itself uh, because it foretells, I think, his future conflict with Guts. You know? He doesn't like that arrangement. He's going with it because he's got no choice, but he doesn't like any of it. I think he was probably betting on the whole scenario of Guts just saying no, and then they would return to their family household, and that would be that. But gut, her cutting off her braid, Guts accepting it, that changes the whole you know menu for him. Hmm. And I really do think it's um, you know, like, like uh, Gray mentioned earlier, and she 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 had that uh, you know that part about cutting off Isidro's arm, yeah. and <laughs> at, at that point she's still she's still you know she's halfway between uh, being. You know, the woman she was, you know, as part of the Holy See. And, and I, I guess she's not that, you know, maso, uh, not masochistic, more like sadistic woman anymore, but she's still a bratty, noble, noble woman, you know. And um, when she cuts down these brats and she, you know, she shows, I think she shows a humility 
and a new side that's the beginning of her uh, transition to who she becomes, you know, later on. Right. So, uh, yeah. I mean, she's she's kind of an empty vessel right now. She she's it's her first real step towards becoming her own person, which we eventually see. But she still was, you know, nurtured or raised in the shadow of both her family and the church. You know, both of which caused her to live in fear and adopt some dark practices. But yeah, she's. Other than her initiating the step to learn more and to become a better person, she hasn't really made that step other than wanting to. So yeah, this is it. I also think it's interesting that you know her desire to learn more. You know, of course, it's there from the beginning, but it's what eventually leads her to becoming a, a witch. You know, mm-hmm. which is a uh, it's like it's just incredibly consistent. You know, like it's what. Even, you know, in the conviction arc, she, she's, you know, uh, eager to know about the world so that she's not afraid of it anymore. And in this volume, in the, in the next few ones, uh, we see that crystallize into her wanting to, to become a magic user because that's what they're all about, you know, knowing the world. And so I find that, you know, impressive, that consistency, uh, you know, at all steps of the, of the thing. Yeah, it's perfectly congruent with the way Flora explains, you know, what it is to be a magic user or a witch, uh, to understand and know the world, which is the path that she's headed towards. It's funny, I definitely did not predict her being a magic user right until the point where Shirke, you know, brings out an apple, basically, in Ritanis. Mm-hmm. Um, I never really thought of Farnese as being a magic user, but it, it makes and sense. now she's at the top of her class and she got the... Yeah. She got the queen's outfit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, a th- th- three-month course? Accelerated Acce- study? Accelerated yeah. course, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's nothing like real-world experience that Shirk has shown us. So, Well, even even though she's also a gifted student, so I guess it's uh, it's kind of cheating. Maybe the uh, last thing I want to say about this episode is uh, the last page of it. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's very powerful, uh, iconic even. We've got stepping away from a tied-up uh, casca looking bad, uh, back at her and, you know, with that line that, again, the night, you know, comes and uh, it's uh, it reflects on this endless cycle of, you know, these fighting all night long and traveling during the day, you know, that restless thing. Yeah, and it's actually in contrast to the, the beginning of the overflowing time episode where he is pulling her on her lead. And he's, you know, the he's looking really downcast and tired and they kind of work together in that way to show the transition. Because now he's got people to look after her. Yeah, so he can walk away. And of course, that, that repetition just before that was, you know, when was the last time she smiled? Which is uh, something, again, we, we, we get to see uh, when, for example, she they arrive at the, at the ocean. Mm-hmm. And she runs in the sea, smiling with Isidro, laughing. And he looks back at that. So that's interesting, you know, that transition... And something, again, something Mira didn't just forget about, but, you know, gets back to later on. Yeah, the episode continues, but we're going to stop it there for a number of reasons. This is a clean, a clean cut way to end <laughs> uh, the, the podcast. But thanks for joining on this, on this, joining us on this uh, tumultuous journey through the first half of Volume 23. And we'll be back in a few weeks to wrap it up with uh, the other half of Volume 23. Cool. All right. Bye-bye, guys. All right. Bye. The Skullcast is a production of Skullknight.net, a Berserk fan community. If you like what you heard, please visit patreon.com sknet. 
Donations there do not go towards the podcast, but instead toward our resident translator, Puela, who ensures that our members have access to high-quality, text-based translations of Berserk. Puela has also been translating interviews with Berserk's creator, Kentaro Miura. Many of these interviews have never been translated into English, so it's very exciting to read those. That kind of work simply wouldn't have happened without support from our donors. If you'd like to chip in a buck or two, please know that it all helps. Once again, that's patreon.com slash sknet. If you have a question or want to comment on the podcast, visit our forum, skullnet.net slash forum. Near the top, you'll see a section devoted to the podcast. There's always an active thread in there, so go ahead, leave a post, and someone's sure to respond quickly. Thanks for listening.